So thanks for having, thanks for coming and having an interview with me. I really appreciate uh, you giving up your time for me. Uh, a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this ever since I was invited. So, um, where did you grow up? I grew up uh, on a farm near Gravesend, which is a little village in the northwest between Moree and Inverell. And um, uh, I've lived all my life within 50 kilometres of where I grew up. And is there any memorable experiences from your childhood? I think I had a pretty idyllic childhood. Um, lots of um, horse riding and uh, farm work. All I ever wanted to do from when I was very tiny was to be a farmer. And I probably, if I had to read one memorable thing, and it's probably a bit relevant to what we're just going through at the moment with the drought. In 1965, I was seven years old, uh, and that was the next worst drought before the one we've just had. So I can remember no pony camp that year, no holidays that year, and uh, I was just old enough to drive a tractor delivering the feeders out to the stock um, that uh, had you know the mixed-up feed in them. And so I, I think that was something uh, that I remember. And I think... Um, it was something I was proud of as a young person. Uh, we see a lot of comments now about farm kids being disadvantaged because they're helping out with the drought. I actually think it's the opposite. I think uh, I think it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity at an early age to be able to feel like you're you're contributing and you're helping out. And so, uh, as a seven year old, I have a very strong memory of that time. Did you face any other challenges during your childhood? <sighs> No, I didn't. I haven't. I don't really have a log cabin story uh, uh, of, of hardship. I think I grew up in a. I was the child number four in a family of five, uh, and uh, my uh, I had sisters that were much older than me. So I was sort of the three brothers that grew up more together. But um, no, I think uh, I think everything went pretty well for my childhood. And you said you um you you always lived within fifty kilometres of your home. Does that include now? Uh, yes, it does. Yes, it does. So I live at Warrialda now. So uh, uh, we're having this interview in Dubbo. Uh, a lot of people don't realise that my house is a five-hour drive from my office in Dubbo, uh, but my electorate is half of New South Wales, so where you live doesn't matter. I spend most of my time on the road. So, yes, uh, I, we just live in a little tiny uh, hobby, call it a hobby farm now, uh, not far out of town, but it's uh, at Warrialda. And being away from your family by driving five hours to your office every day. Does that impact how you have your relationships with your family? Yes, it's a big change. And so uh, I was elected to Parliament 12 and a bit years ago. The, the same week that I was elected to Parliament, my youngest child finished Year 12. And so he'd uh, my, my two daughters and my son at that stage were living independently. They were away from home. Uh, and my wife and I made a decision that she would travel with me and so uh, mostly um, we've lived our life as a couple on the road. I think last year I spent 150 nights in motels away from home Uh, and uh, it's a little bit different now because we've now got a couple of grandchildren so my wife does spend a bit of time uh, helping out uh, with our daughters and their and their babies but uh, so it would be a difficult job if you had small children to go home to because you know, I get home not every weekend, but maybe sometimes it's just one night uh, and one day or half a day at home. And so wouldn't be very good uh, if I had a family at home. But by the time I took this job on, my family had grown up. And what was your first step towards becoming a federal MP? It wasn't a long-term goal. Um, obviously, the first step uh, was in 2004, the then state government uh, went through a series of amalgamations of local councils and uh, uh, in recent history we've seen uh, how controversial that can be. It was just the same back in 2004. Uh, I lived on a farm then that was going to be 100 kilometres from which was going to be the Shire headquarters in Bingra and I thought that it, you know, maybe um, the representation might not be that strong from, from the area that I lived in. I tried to talk a few of my friends into running for council and uh, they declined and so I put my hand up. Uh, I was elected to council uh, and at the, my very first council meeting I was elected uh, to the position of mayor. And so um, that was a life changer because up until then uh, I'd mainly worked with my brothers, 
on my own or with a very small staff of maybe one or two people. So to be in charge of an organisation with 150 staff uh, and uh, being the mayor of a quite a large large rural area with um, several towns and villages was a big change, but I just absolutely loved it. I still think that probably the best job I've ever had was being mayor of Gwydah Shire. And so that, um, th- that got me used to the idea of public service and working in that space. And then I'd got involved in the National Party more as a, an interest. Uh, I, it used to take me away from the farm. Uh, I met people who... Um, from other areas and I found it stimulating and I ended up being the chairman of the electorate council for what was then the seat of Gwydah. John Anderson was the deputy prime minister and he was a local member and I looked after the organisation behind him and I wasn't an overly political person but I found it very interesting to be at that. Uh, When John Anderson told me probably 18 months before he retired that he was thinking of retiring, uh, that got uh, me to the idea that I thought that someone from a small country town, someone with a local government background, someone with a rural background, uh, could bring those skills to Parliament. And so uh, I talked it over with my wife and um, you know, we went through uh, uh, the process of pre-selection. We sold our farm and, uh, and I've been doing this now for just over 12 years. And did your first experience as Mayor of the Shire, did, did, did you take anything away from that, any of that work that you input into your federal life? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people think um, that, um, you know, if you're a member of the National Party and you live in a rural electorate like Parks that's half of New South Wales, all the issues are around farming. But the truth of the matter is over 80% uh, of my constituents actually live in town. And so when I was mayor, it was the same. Uh, uh, The issues of community. So uh, as mayor of Gwydah, I was heavily involved in education. We we didn't have any TAFE, we didn't have a university, so we formed the Gwydah Learning uh, Region, and that um, we we had uh, adults and and uh, and and school children doing certificate three in aged care in the same classroom. We had large numbers of students doing uh, school-based traineeships, and so I I learnt. The, the value of education to a community. Uh, we owned uh, our own aged care facility, uh, so I got a, a very sharp introduction into the technicalities and the difficulties of managing aged care, but the importance of having a facility where you can age in your own town. People don't talk about this, but it's so important. Uh, we talk about, uh, with health, uh, you know, the important things for younger people but it's very important that when your end of life comes that you can actually die in your own town surrounded by your family and friends and so we had to fight hard to make sure that we had those facilities in our local community so I guess being a federal member just magnifies um, the same issues uh, across a um, a broader range the, the issues are still the same you know roads uh, a need to be upgraded uh, uh, medical services connections to uh, to the larger centres, all those things are important and they're still the same things that I'm dealing with now. And you're talking about uh, your experience with education in your uh, earlier roles. Yeah. Um, do you feel that is still an important role and why didn't you pursue education as your ministerial duties? Um, that's interesting. Uh, I actually believe education is the key to everything we deal with. Uh, I think um, I, I, I am terribly concerned... Uh, in this um, world of massive information. The world's biggest library is in your hand with an iPhone. The world's biggest library is in your hand. Uh, But with all that information now, uh, uh, I think people can select the truth. You can pretty well go on Google and you can find an argument to back up whatever you want to think and reinforce your thoughts. And so um, I think it's important that young people... Uh, well, all people really learn to actually analyse the situation and come to their own decision. Don't rely on others to uh, uh, to influence the way you think about things. Uh, and really, you do need a solid education to be able to have that that level of of skill to be analytical uh, to to work things out for yourself. Because uh, uh, we've never had so much information but in some ways uh, as a society I think we've never been as ignorant uh, because uh, there's just so much information uh, for, for people to choose from. And 
Do you feel that by working the land for so long, you're better suited to be a representative for rural communities? And are the needs for rural communities broadly understood in Canberra? Look, I think the the needs... I'll answer this backwards, if you like. I think the needs for rural communities are understood. I think uh, Australia um, really does value... You know, we, we sort of have a large rural heritage, the, the, despite the fact that the clear majority of Australians now live in, in, in the cities. Uh, they, they, they mightn't completely understand uh, rural Australia, they mightn't really understand what it's like to be a farmer, but they treasure that. Uh, and so I think that is important. Um, but I think the skill set uh, that I bring uh, as being a farmer for 30 years is very important. To be a good farmer, I mean, anyone can be a good farmer when the prices are good, the weather's kind, uh, everything goes well. The good farmers are the ones that can assess a situation and make the best of that situation. So the farmers that are going to come out of this current drought are the ones that can think uh, uh, differently and uh, come up with business plans, do things slightly different and make the best use of what's in front of you. Politics is the same. You know, you, you, can, you can put your head down like a big bulldozer and make a lot of noise and demand things and get nowhere. In politics, you've got to work out the, the resources that you have. Uh, and and sometimes it, to go from A to B, you need to go through C, D and E uh, to get there. And uh, and so I think um, I think my farming background is, is very good because it's, it's a difficult uh, place to work. It's incredibly rewarding and that's the same as politics. And so, um, you know, I, I, I rely a lot on the skills I learned as a farmer um, in the job I've got today. In your opinion, what responsibility does an elected member have to the people of their electorate? Um, look, in the broader sense, uh, I, uh, I'm the voice uh, of the people of half of New South Wales in the Australian Parliament. So I have, I have one vote out of 151 in the House of Representatives. It's an, that's the simple answer. Uh, but I think um, the responsibility you have is for a start, you have to understand your electorate. Okay, and I can tell you that uh, a lot of the, what the, the, the city-based media think re, re, regional Australia is, uh, what the social media commentary about regional Australia is, um, is, is, is doing it in very simplistic terms. And so you've got to understand um, uh, all the issues. And so I actually represent... Uh, probably more Aboriginal peoples in Canberra than I do farmers. And so uh, you have a responsibility to build relationships in those communities, uh, earn the trust uh, and understand what they want uh, and then work um, uh, through the possibilities of making those things happen. It's the same uh, uh, right across. And so unless you um, understand the people that you're representing, um, you can't do the job. So my... I see my role as the voice of those people and their representative to help them be the best they can possibly be. And and it's very, very broad, the issues you get involved in. Um, sadly, quite often uh, my job is portrayed uh, and my worth is rated as to how uh, uh, loudly I yell at my opponents in Canberra. Uh, and, and that's not it at all. But, uh, you know, I, I say all the time that... Uh, you get a lot further in Canberra with honey than you do vinegar. And it's all about relationships. So the first six years I was a member of parliament, I was in opposition. Every time I went in to vote, I came second. Uh, but still, uh, during that period of time, I had uh, members of the government come to see issues in my electorate, whether it was flooded roads or disability services or telecommunications. Uh, those, those who were my political opponents still came and helped me out because um, uh, that's important that you, uh, um, you, you do whatever tools you have uh, to build those relationships so that you can best serve the people that you represent. How did you first gain the skill set to use those social relationships to your advantage and how would you suggest other people what, what would you suggest for other people to build their Look, skill sets? Look, everyone has a slightly different way of doing things, OK? Um, if you look at the recent commentary um, from some, it seems like you have to be some sort of an entertainer to be a member of parliament. People, uh, you know, are such and such as boring, uh, uh, you know, we, we, they're not lively enough. I, I think that's 
um, bunkum, quite frankly. Uh, I think uh, you need to be who you are. You can't create an image to be a member of parliament. So um, I've never tried to be anything that I'm not. And, and people, once they get to know you, respect that. So if I had a different personality, uh, I could still be a very effective member of parliament. Uh, probably you would do it differently, do things differently to what I do. And so I think what the Australian people look for in a member of parliament is someone who is genuine. That's not, you know, like there's, there's 151 members of the reps, I think there's 76 senators, uh, and they're all different. They all represent different communities from different parts of Australia. So we do have a mix, but if someone uh, is not genuine, uh, the public soon uh, work that out. So I think my, you know, the answer to the question is you just need to be who you are and, uh, and work hard. And does that translate into society? Can people take away this message and think about their personal image in society? Do they have to... Does everyone have to be who they are and not someone else? Yeah, and I think one of the big traps we have at the moment is social media, okay? If you looked at most people's Facebook posts, you think they lived this idyllic life where, um, you know, they were holding trophies up from winning things at sport to cute family snaps. Um, life's not like that. Uh, and so uh, I think... Um, uh, you know, I, I heard a very wise man say to this once uh, uh, in Dubbo uh, to a group of, uh, of uh, students uh, who were looking, look, looking to enter the police force. And he was talking about social media and he said, how many friends have you got? And someone said, you know, thousand friends. And he said, OK, if you were sick in hospital, how many of them would come and visit you and offer to help out at home because you're sick in hospital? And someone said, maybe six. Say, so, well, get rid of the rest because they're not your friends. And so uh, I think um, uh, I think we are in danger of losing civility. And civility uh, is what enables people who have differences of opinion uh, to communicate and come to a position um, that is, is, can be acceptable to both. Uh, when we lose civility and people uh, communicate um, in, a, in a very abrupt and rude way, uh, then we lose the ability to um, come to a sensible position. And so if I can use an example now, um, you know, the, 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 with uh, coal-fired power, um, you know, it's been... I was asked by a journalist in Canberra, are you for coal or against coal? I said, that's a ridiculous question. It's much more complex than that you know you're looking at energy mixes you're looking at emissions you're looking at looking after the environment you're looking at employment uh, you're looking at productivity a whole range of issues and you can't answer those in a 10 second grab or a facebook page and so um you know i think uh that that you need to uh keep those uh lines of communication open and uh and 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 have civil conversations and i worry that the the uh uh, email and uh, and social media uh, have taken away sometimes that need to be polite and uh, uh, I think um, uh, that that's a concern. I think we need to hang on to that. You know, we we talk about Australia uh, as as having a culture of mateship. Well, a culture of mateship doesn't enable you to 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 be uh, abusive to someone that you've never ever met. Uh, on uh, on a social media page, so mateships looking after uh, someone who's uh, who, who's your friend and acquaintance and fellow uh, human. So uh, I, I think that uh, we need to hang on to that with Parliament because if we if Parliament uh, doesn't become an area where um, ideas are debated in a in a thoughtful way, it just becomes a shouting match uh, with ten second sound grabs. That will not be in the good interest of this country. And how does social media impact your political life directly? I can't take the high moral ground and say I don't like social media uh, because I've got two Facebook pages. Uh, I've got an official one uh, that uh, uh, we run with the help of some of my staff uh, and they might put out um, sort of things that I'm doing but maybe some messages that are more political. Uh, and then I've got a personal one of um, where um, you know I might put photos of you know, the rain on my green lawn or 
visiting the grandkids, uh, those more interesting things, you know, people keeping track of people's birthdays and things like that. So uh, I use social media, uh, but uh, I think um, I think we need to be very very wary uh, that we remain very civil and so. I can put up a, a post um, about something um, that's sort of relevant to the electorate and uh, if you're not careful, the comments can go way off beam that have no relevance to the post at all. It's just an opportunity for someone to, to vent uh, a, you know, their own points of view in a very nasty and, and unpleasant way. And so I don't like that idea. Um, you know, previous to social media, someone would have had to have written you a letter or, you know, to have spoken to you face to face now through uh, uh, you know um, there's a there was a, a um, column written by an anonymous, completely anonymous person on crikey.com yesterday where I got a mention I don't even know who this person is that wrote that story um, and from your position as a federal member what repercussions of the drought have you seen uh, look this is I think in my 12 years the droughts has been the, had the biggest impact on my electorate um, it's it's flowed through from from farms to local businesses. Um, you know, I think the, the biggest impact of the drought, though, is that we've devalued regional Australia. Uh, I love regional Australia. Uh, I see enormous potential for a whole range of, of of things that we can do here. You know, we're building a railway line that'll enable businesses to grow here. Um, you know, it's it's housing affordability. There's a whole range of reasons why it's a great thing to live in regional Australia. But for the last three years, when people from away have turned on their tellies, they've seen uh, stories of dying sheep. Uh, they've seen dry rivers, dead fish. More recently, bushfires. More recently, even still floods. Uh, on that, and and they're issues that we deal with, but they don't define us. And, uh, and so I, I am concerned that um, regional Australia has been seen by some uh, as a charity, uh, a, a place to be pitied, not a place to aspire to and a place to admire. And so I think that's the long-term challenge that we have uh, because um, uh, a, a lot of what's been portrayed isn't what's going on. The, a vast majority of people are going through a, a very tough time but they're dealing with it. You know, that's what we do. We deal with things and we work hard at it and we get through, whereas, unfortunately, it's been portrayed in some quarters uh, as, uh, as being highly emotional. Uh, and it is for some. There's no doubt that, you know, some people will, you know, um, will find it very difficult to get back on their feet again and I'm dealing with farmers on a daily basis. But I think in the long term, you know, those of us that live in regional Australia um, love it and they want it to... To, to want to have a future, and I think that you know, getting through the drought is hard, but I hope it doesn't define who we are from now on. And do you feel any pressure making decisions for the country? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Uh, I think um, it's um, it's never the decisions you make aren't that you're not consciously making a decision that's going to disadvantage anyone. Okay. Uh, uh, more of the decisions you make are ones where you sort of had to fight hard for um, funding for a certain stream of things. And so I'll give you a good example. Um, uh, just recently, the classification, because I'm the Minister for Re Regional Health, OK? So the classification for uh, the measurement for remoteness um, hadn't been changed for over 30 years. and um, And so in that 30 years, a lot of... The, the areas, um, particularly in sort of around the cities and in large regional areas, had changed from being country towns to being part of a larger urban sprawl. And so the regional classification for, for rural and remote no longer applied to those areas. And so with that um, classification come ex comes extra assistance from the government. If you're a doctor, there's a higher rate that you can charge uh, uh, for your Medicare rebate. There's a money that can go into the practice to help employ a practice nurse and things like that. And so some of those changes have meant that um, some, uh, some uh, areas who are getting a level of government assistance no longer get it. So they, you know, it's been portrayed by some as you know, that we're ripping something that's in, an entitlement away uh, from someone. But the decision was never 
uh, about that. The decision that was made was to make sure that regional areas are, are defined clearly so that we can focus on putting regional programs into those areas. And so quite often uh, decisions you make can be portrayed as being negative when really the, the, the motivation behind the changes was purely for a positive reason. And what other ministerial roles uh, do you hold besides uh, Minister for Regional Health? So I had a little bit of a change. Uh, at the moment, I'm regional health, uh, regional communications. So that's uh, mobile phones, um, the NBN. Um, we're doing more on, on um, digital connectivity. Uh, we've got some programs uh, uh, on, on getting higher speed uh, and higher capacity broadband into more regional and remote areas for those uh, uh, individuals and businesses that need it and local government. And so there's 547 local government areas around Australia. The largest one, I believe, is in Brisbane uh, with 1.3 million residents uh, and uh, the smallest ones in Western Australia, I think, and uh, or maybe Queensland. In Queensland, as a mayor told me, that uh, 10, 10 of the ratepayers pay 90% of the rates. So it's probably only got three, two or 300 people all up that live in, in that council area. So they quite variable but because of my background in local government uh, I enjoy that so at the last change I gave up assistant trade I really liked assistant trade I got to negotiate on behalf of our country in trade negotiations uh, with RCEP which is a regional comprehensive economic partnership uh, that was a, a, an agreement that's been worked through at the moment uh, I got to go to Japan and I, uh, at a meeting hosted by Shinzo Abe uh, on uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership 11, which is 11 countries around the Pacific, which is probably the biggest trading block now uh, in the in the globe. So that's pretty cool. Uh, but uh, because of the of the issues around rural workforce uh, and telecommunications, I wanted to focus down on those on those things. And so I did have regional education as well. Uh, but. Uh, as much as I uh, enjoyed that, um, it's it's now gone uh, to uh, to another member. Um, and what are some of the problems and challenges facing regional areas in regards to health? Uh, look, workforce is a, is a big one, uh, and so um, over a period of time, um, there was a change uh, of attitude, I guess, from the universities, the colleges, and maybe from the profession itself, and maybe from the governments at the time, uh, where uh, it was seen that um, all doctors needed to specialise. Uh, the idea behind that, obviously, is if you specialise and you become very good at one thing, then then you provide a better service. Uh, works well um, to an extent, but in regional areas, um, there's a need for doctors that have a broader range of skills so if you're in a country town you might be seeing patients all day with general health issues okay diabetes cold and flu you know issues around old age babies all of that sort of thing but you need you know maybe on friday night a carload of teenagers hits a tree and all of a sudden you need to have the ability to to deal with a higher level of trauma uh, um, and so uh, we, we've we now are, are training doctors um, in what's called a generalist pathway, so they have a broader range of skills to uh, enable them to, to handle a broader range of circumstances. We've got issues around allied health and nursing. Uh, it's no good having a doctor in town that has the ability to deliver babies if you don't have another doctor who's an anaesthetist in case you have to do an emergency caesarean, and you need a full shift of midwives and nurses that have um, you know have qualified for that. So it's not just a matter of having doctors into these areas. You've got to bring the full uh, uh, workforce around that allied health, pharmacy, uh, pharmacists, and also struggling to, uh, to to find qualified people to work. So I think workforce is is, is probably the main one. But also um, uh, having services that people can access. And so one of the things I'm most proud of is the Cancer Centre. So this week, uh, uh, demolition has started on the old building for where the new Western Cancer Centre will be established. So someone in Western New South Wales, Dublo, or, 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 the, or, or the Western region will be able to have absolutely the best cancer treatment uh, and diagnosis anywhere in, the, in Australia, in the world, in Dubbo. And so um, 
if they've got to have treatment, and quite often cancer treatment can be over you know, weeks and months, uh, they can do that in a, in, within their own community uh, rather than having to travel off to, uh, to another area. So I think having those services out uh, in, uh, in where people can access them is also important. Um, I saw that you secured $3 million for a drug rehabilitation centre in Dubbo. Hmm. And why was that problem important to address? Look, it's um, uh, I, I'm terribly concerned about the impact of drugs in our country towns. I think it's actually worse than people realise. Um, my little town of Warrialda, I, I know four or five um, people who are in jail or have been in jail uh, because of issues that happen because of their addiction to methamphetamine and these were good people I know personally from good families and I think that's magnified right across uh, the regions and so um, I, I think that we we really haven't got on top of this problem yet and so one of the reasons why I'm supportive of a, a drug rehabilitation centre in the west is that when someone and I'm not an expert on this but when someone reaches out for help um, and that can happen a couple of times they can either get into trouble with the law or they can get to a personal point in their lives where they want help if you haven't got a facility and a service for that time right at that time when they ask for the help they may not um, ask for it again they may regress and uh, and, uh, and 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 then their life of addiction continues and so i think it's important that um, we have facilities uh, where um, people can get them in a timely manner. Um, that's a bit of the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff as well. Uh, I think we need to do more work uh, with people to explain to them that, um, that how dangerous, dangerous it is to actually take this for the first time. I, I'm absolutely horrified when I see the numbers uh, of young people who get caught up at rock uh, music festivals uh, taking um, uh, different forms of illicit substances, uh, not realising that it could be on, on the, um, uh, you know, leading to a path of, of, of complete destruction. I, you know, these people I speak about, marriages break up, lose their children, all those sort of things. And so I think it's a big, big issue, bigger than we probably realise. And so the rehab centre is part of it, but I think as a society we're going to have to take a different view. I think we're far too uh, accept, accepting uh, of, uh, of people who take illicit substances, uh, um, not knowing the long-term effects. And are drug problems or health problems different for regional, rural, remote or urban areas? Look, I don't know. Um, I don't know the statistics on that. I suspect that in percentage of population, probably worse in the rural areas. It's not It's not just um, people who are maybe down and out in life. Uh, I'm hearing reports now that uh, uh, cocaine use has uh, improved, uh, increased uh, in, uh, in country towns uh, in my electorate, and uh, that does scare me as well. So I think, you know, we've made headways um, with... Tobacco consumption, although I think my electorate's probably high up on the average of people that are, uh, are consume tobacco and, uh, and alcohol uh, is is continued uh, to, to be a problem as well. So, um, yeah, I think we've got a long way to go. I think, you know, um, you only have one life and one body and I think to artificially um, damage that um, is, is, is incredibly sad. And how do you know which uh, problems to address? There's uh, in the whole broad category of regional health. How do you know which problems to focus on and divert money to? Very good question. Um, you you, um, you try and cover as many of them as you can, uh, and uh, uh, but um, one of the I think one of the challenges I'm finding as a government minister is that governments. It's for the whole of Australia. Coming from local government, you can sort of work out a bit of a local solution. Um, and, uh, and so um, quite often you can't sort of have a, a generic approach where you're going to put out a program that covers all of Australia, OK? Because 
quite often the successful um, programs, whether it's drug rehabilitation or other health programs, are largely because of the drive and the personality of individuals. And it's a real challenge for government to identify individuals because you know a program that might work uh, great here in Dubbo uh, because uh, of the motivation of the people that are implementing it may not work somewhere else if you don't have that same level of, uh, of motivation. So it is a challenge. But we, uh, I'm pleased to see last week we actually announced a trial uh, on, uh, on an employment model uh, in the Murrumbidgee region which identifies that they uh, have come up with a solution to a problem. Uh, it needed some regulations being changed by the government uh, and, uh, and so we've, we've set up that trial uh, to, um, to, to see how um, that can improve the employment prospects uh, in that area and obviously if that works we'll look at replicating that but it's very difficult. Um, I don't think we prioritise, we try and cover uh, issues as best we can. The real challenge is quite often governments like to um, I, I guess um, show their uh, commitment to a program by the amount of money that's spent. You, if you have, how often do you hear the government spent $5 billion on mental health? What does that mean? You know, uh, uh, it's more to how many people have we helped through issues around mental health. And so that's the big challenge with government is to actually um, have programs that can actually get down and target the people they need, but also have the flexibility to understand that communities and people who are leaders in those communities are, are quite different. Going on to some other of your uh, roles, um, not many people understand what regional communication means and the importance of regional communication. Can you just run us through what being a minister of that means? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes I don't like to admit that I'm the Minister for Regional Communications because uh, uh, we, we see, if you want to know uh, a, a real example of, of, of what happens when communications aren't um, working well is one of the things that showed up with the recent bushfires is that uh, the vulnerability of, of our communications network. So mobile phone towers went down. Maybe they weren't under threat themselves, but quite often they're connected by an electricity connection and, and it burnt out. Um, you know, whole telephone exchanges burnt so people didn't have landlines. The power went out and so, so many people now have... Um, every communication is relying on, on, on having uh, electricity to it and when the power went out, they lost it. So, And that was incredibly frustrating for, for people. So regional communications is is obviously a phone service and so uh, we've we've had um, over the last couple of few years we've funded about 1200 sites for mobile phone towers in regional Australia. Round five is about to be announced uh, by me in the next couple of weeks which will be some more towers but it's broader than that. Uh, our, our need for data is evolving at such a pace it's really difficult for the networks to keep up so when the first phone towers went up, you know, I had a flip phone and I'd made phone calls on it. Uh, now, if you go out into a farming area, um, you might be making a phone call on that tower. Uh, the young guy uh, or girl in the tractor next door might be watching Netflix as they're going up and down on their satellite-guided satellite tractor. Uh, someone uh, in the front of the ute, an agronomist, might be uh, uh, emailing a, a chemical company in Melbourne to get a... Uh, an opinion on a on a on a rate of application, um, the tractor over there breaks down, and uh, it's been monitored uh, from a centre in uh, Illinois in the United States. Um, they're getting uh, uh, the, the 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 technician is plugging an iPad into a port on the on that machine to get a full diagnosis. All of that requires an enormous amount of data, and so as soon as uh, as governments and telcos. Uh, come up with a the next level of uh, of capacity. Uh, the Australian people work out ways of using that. So at the moment we've just had five G uh, rolled out in Dubbo, and uh, it uh, hopefully will um, provide a higher level of of digital connectivity uh, for a period of time. But mostly, um, I think four G. Um, it's probably been going for about five or six years, maybe seven. But uh, but you've always it's so it's not just a matter of filling in blank spots, uh, but it's a matter of making sure that you can keep the capacity up. Now, we might be only a few years away from low 
uh, orbiting satellites, and so you won't need to be connected to a tower. Uh, your phone might just work uh, anywhere in Australia because there's a low orbiting satellite uh, above you. And so um, the real challenge in regional communications is is obviously filling the spots now where there's problems, but but also trying to get the best advice so that you're investing in things that will be relevant to the future. Um, and what are, what are some of your short-term and long-term goals to improve regional communication? Okay, so short-term, uh, we've got some uh, mobile uh, phone black spots, as I say, some more towers that will be announced. Uh, we've also got a, a regional connectivity program of $53 million in it that uh, we sort of have a discussion paper uh, out at the moment. And so that's to look at cutting-edge, innovative ways uh, uh, to connect people. So uh, maybe more effective ways of delivering broadband services, uh, uh, voice services, maybe improving the technology uh, from satellite to voice, uh, those um, those things. Uh, we've also got funding for a, for a better word, a telecommunications hub, because one of the issues is that quite often people are languishing, uh, bemoaning the fact that they don't have uh, a, a level of service when the answer is actually there, uh, but they don't know what the answer is, and so uh, we, we're setting up some uh, sort of. It's a bit of a challenge because, you know, you look at some of your friends and uh, they just go onto a website, but how do you connect to people that don't have connectivity? They don't have websites, and so we've got to work out um, uh, uh, in in plain layman's terms. Um, some of the solutions that are actually out there. A lot of people don't know that on the NBN satellite um, you can actually use your uh, iPhone with Wi-Fi calling. When I'm at home at my house, which is on the satellite, um, um, I make all my phone calls are through the satellite. Uh, we FaceTime our grandkids on the satellite. Uh, you can watch Netflix on their satellite. Uh, but a lot of people don't realise that that's even there. So we've got, we've got a... Um, that program to uh, to do that, but I guess the other challenges and what we're looking at now, and I've had quite a few meetings with technology companies that are looking at this cutting edge, where to go to next, and so that we can actually fill in those gaps in our communications uh, in the region that where people don't have any, because um, it's it's not have not a luxury to have a mobile phone. People don't they they ring your mobile number first, and if it doesn't work when you're at home, only uh, works when you get to the top of the hill going to town. Uh, then you're really not uh, properly connected. Um, and so, does uh, not being connected to um, uh, to data and um, Wi-Fi does that uh, reduce the uh, willingness of people who want to move out to regional areas? And how does that impact the town, the town's economy, and how it survives? You are exactly correct. There's, if I had to summarise three. Um, Things that people look at. Um, I mean, there's the obvious. Apart from the obvious ones, is is, is a job and houses. But uh, lifestyle issues. They'll look at. They'll want to know what their connectivity is like with the internet. Uh, they'll want to know what the schools are there, uh, because um, one thing I know is the strongest instinct in people is that they want the best for their kids, and so they'll want to know what uh, what the level of schools are. And uh, the third one is I want to know um, if I get sick, is there someone there that's suitably qualified to uh, look after me or if, if I want to have a baby, can I have that baby there? Or uh, if I'm, And so they're the three things. And so um, and, 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 and so communications, you know, is important of all of those. So, you know, we've, we've got people now uh, delivering health services uh, via the uh, NBN satellite in remote communities in my electorate now. And so... You know, some of the um, you know maybe hesitant to go and live in a really remote area, uh, working as a teacher or a medical professional or working on a property, um, a whole range of things. Uh, that connectivity is helping people be to be more closely connected, uh, and so it, it's very very important. Just just as an aside, um, I have absolutely woeful mobile phone service in my office in Parliament House in Canberra. <sighs> I have to use Wi-Fi to make a phone call in my office. That's because we live under a hill. <laughs> and um, so, moving on to your uh, one of your other ministerial duties, what does uh, being Minister of Local Government entail? Look, local government. I, um, local government is the is the level of governments that's closest to communities, and uh, 
So the federal government, um, for instance, um, in the drought, the federal government has given councils across my, the 18 councils in my electorate $2 million to, to, to have stimulus programs within their area to employ people, purchase local goods and services. Uh, we went straight to local government because we know they have the ability to do that. In the bushfire areas, local government has been predominantly um, um, receiving funding uh, for, for to help those communities get it back on their feet. And so it's a little bit tricky, though, because uh, constitutionally, local government is, is closely connected to the states. They don't actually exist in the constitution uh, as their own entity. They're, they're actually a part of the states. And so uh, quite often uh, funding that goes directly to local government, uh, and, we, and we use that through regional development programs. So, for instance, we, with the, in conjunction, the federal government put $10 million towards the uh, small animals abattoir at Burke uh, because um, it would be an employment opportunity for people in that area. So, but, you, but there is an issue with local government around constitutional recognition uh, to make sure that um, what we do is actually legal uh, to fund that through. And so uh, the other issue is um, making sure that government funding to local government is fair and equitable. And so at the moment... Um, the larger councils that have larger incomes from rates that have you know huge income from parking fines and meters and all that sort of stuff are getting a quite a large uh, level of grants under what's known as the federal assistance grants uh, whereas uh, and it's only a small part of their budget but it's a large amount of money whereas some of the more smaller regional ones the federal assistance grants make up a you know, 60 70 percent of their entire income and so one of the challenges I'm looking at is uh, is looking at a more fair and equitable way that the federal government can support those regional ones. Because in the regional areas, and you know, I've talked about this at the start of the interview, when I was at uh, Guida Shire, we were in aged care, we were in early child care, all of those things. That's because no one else is doing it. Uh, you know, here in Dubbo, there's commercial operators that uh, have, you know run aged care. Uh, they run early learning centres and uh, and things like that. But in some of those smaller country towns, if local government doesn't do it, no one does, and then it becomes a a, a downward spiral because you lose those services. And so, I, I'm really focusing on on the councils that are in those more rural and remote areas. And uh, what do you feel are your greatest contributions to the people of your electorate throughout your time in office? That's a hard one. Uh, you know, we tend to. Uh, we, we tend to measure our success um, by stuff we give, okay? I, I, I've been saying that my, my job is not to come back to my electorate with beads and blankets and, uh, uh, and, and hand out largesse to my people to show how magnanimous and wonderful I am. Um, it's nice when you get uh, a big win, you know. I, I guess I mentioned the Inland Rail in my first speech in Parliament 12 years ago. And to see that that's actually been constructed now and knowing that that's going to be a, a change to, to regional Australia, it's the biggest infrastructure project uh, we've seen for 100 years, um, that's exciting. The Western Cancer Centre, that's another thing that's exciting. Yeah, there's lots of things that, that, that I can, can do it. But I think, I'd like to think my biggest contribution is that I've um, represented all my constituents uh, that I've been a, a fair and strong voice uh, in that area, but been part of government uh, because the, the biggest impact on people's lives is not the stuff that government gives them, it's the environment that's created by government. So that in, in my area, uh, we are below the national average for unemployment. Dubbo unemployment before the drought was just over 2%. It's now just about 3 which is way below. So to create an environment where people have jobs, um, you know, improving the health services to, to, uh, to everyone, you can only do that uh, when you've got uh, strong government. So a lot of what I think is my contribution is probably not largely recognised as that but being a voice in a, in a government that has been able to uh, have financial responsibility uh, and uh, created stability that 
uh, enables other things to follow. You know, the defence of our nation uh, that may be a long way from the thoughts of people at Dubbo, but it is it is important that we that we defend our borders um, and uh, have a strong military. So. Um, I think that's my biggest contribution. There's lots of things that I'm proud of on an individual basis, but I think being part of government is probably my best contribution. And finally, could you tell our listeners one piece of wisdom that you wish you had at my age? What about this one? That's a good question. Okay. Uh, um, I think is, you know, your, your future is your own, but you don't know what that is. So at an early age... Um, get a broader range of experiences and skills that you can. For instance, when I was at school, uh, I was going to be a farmer. All I wanted to do, every spare minute when I wasn't at school, I was, uh, I was working on a farm. And so I did very well at agriculture, geography, and those subjects that interested me. I couldn't really see English was going to be a large part of, uh, of what I was doing. Well, now my career depends on how I can communicate with the written word or the spoken word uh, to people. Uh, I had no idea when I was uh, at school that I would end up, it wasn't even a thought that crossed my mind. And so uh, I think is um, don't narrow down. You know, maybe, maybe you're going to work hard to be a violinist and uh, play in a large orchestra in the opera house. But if that doesn't work out, make sure that you've got some other skills in your back pocket that you can rely on uh, so that uh, when other you, your life takes other paths, uh, you've still got that skill set uh, to take up those opportunities. Um, uh, uh, and, and regrets? I wish I had have learnt to sing. Uh, I can't sing a note. Uh, now, uh, if I'm on the stage and the national anthem starts, I have to make sure that I'm nowhere near the microphone because people would be leaving the hall. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and I think you know, being a, it would be a really cool thing to be able to sing. Uh, but when I was a 13-year-old boy, it was the last thing I was thinking of. Well, thank you, Mark, for all your uh, deep contributions to this podcast. I really enjoyed um, listening to you speak, and I really appreciate the time that you spent in the interview. Look, it's been a real privilege. I I hope people aren't going to use this podcast to cure their insomnia. Uh, it might be a good one uh, with a glass of Milo. Listen to Mark Colton for 10 minutes and you'll sleep for 12 hours maybe. But uh, uh, look, I've enjoyed it. I think it's important uh, that you guys uh, um, are showing an interest. Um, I understand that you've interviewed some very interesting people uh, for your series of podcasts. And I'm very proud and honoured that you've considered that uh, I could be part of it. Thank you, Mr Colton, for your kind words and insightful piece of wisdom. I wish you all the best in your ministerial journeys and again thank you for joining me today.